Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 30, Something Profoundly Wrong. We don't believe you, because we the people. Well, welcome back to History Against the Grain. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing uh, better than expected, Josh, uh, given these, uh, as I say, these fraught times we're living in. Um, I'm still uh, managing to fulfill the duties of my uh, employment which is, uh, also includes occasionally attending to various administrative duties. And so that's how I know how I'm doing. <laughs> the bare minimum is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, in other words, I haven't become comatose or catatonic. Yeah. You know, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't lost all touch with reality. I'm fulfilling various, as I say, professional administrative functions and so I think, uh, well, I think that's what we call the American dream, isn't it? Well, at, at the very least, it's the standard we should be holding everybody to at this point. Um, you know, we were talking before that this is basically a COVID-19 podcast in the sense that it started, you know, at lockdown, basically. We're now mm-hmm. eight months in. I think we're basically almost eight months to day since our first episode. And we are currently <laughs> worse off than they were in many ways than when <laughs> we first shut down in March. Um, my, my fourth grader went back to school. Um, so recording on a, on a Wednesday, he went back to school last Thursday. So Thursday, Friday, and by Monday, two classrooms had already been quarantined two entire, (laughs) so it's like, Oh no. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We just, we can't, I mean, I know we already dealt with the failed society last week, but man, we are truly a failed society. Um, just totally unequal to the task of, of anything at this point. Is it strange that I would take as a measure of you know, doing well as a measure of, of success that I'm just barely doing my job and that that seems like, you know, a victory. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I don't know what else you can ask of people at this point. I mean, obviously we have the healthcare workers who are not just doing the the basic, the, the minimum, but working like 10 days in a row in, in these horrific conditions. And, um, but for the, for the rest of us, yeah, we're just trying to get by. And, you know, I, I can't stress enough as as instructors, um, you know, how much we need to be sensitive to the fact that our students are also going through this, also barely hanging on. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had this, I was telling you that earlier, I had this experience today where a student emailed me because there's a essay due this week and said, hey, can I have a couple more days in the essay? Because I just tested positive for COVID. And, oh, the, you know, the idea of basically somebody apologizing because they got COVID and can't do the essay um, you know, it, it really makes me aware of the system we built in which, you know, our students and then I think employees of various businesses as well feel like they always need to apologize for horrible things happening to them, right? Mm-hmm. To the extent that it makes them miss work or miss an essay that mm-hmm. they should be apologizing. And, um, you know, I wish we could develop a world in which we had systems in place that you know, if you have to miss work, you have to miss work and it doesn't require an apology and you don't have to worry about losing your job or getting an F or, or whatever else. But, um, you know, we can do that in our own classes. And I, I hope for all the educators out there, we are doing that in our classes. 
But man, it, it really just drives home the fact that we live in a fundamentally unfeeling society in many ways, um, which has taught people that that you know any kind of sickness is weakness, any kind of tragedy is weakness. And um, man, I, I just wish we could yeah. get beyond that. Yeah, and we're going to talk about in this episode, in fact, today, an episode entitled Something Profoundly Wrong that uh, in part, it's a kind of distorted perspective, you know, that, that you're describing here, mm. that things get turned upside down. You know, the person who's sick is the one who ends up apologizing. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, later today, I have to uh, zoom in uh, with a curriculum meeting. And, you know, for what we do, Josh, uh, folks might appreciate who aren't teachers, you know, is uh, where, where curriculum is concerned as our the courses we teach uh, have to go through a process of revision and updating every uh, so often so that, you know, when students come to our college and take these courses, they can be assured of, in effect, what their money is buying them. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, not only that, you know, Weiner is teaching world history or Padgett's teaching U.S. history, but that the world and U.S. history courses we're teaching will duly transfer, uh, gain the academic credit, transcript credit that they promise, uh, and be received in the uh, the larger world as what they claim they are. So as much as we complain sometimes about it, the minutiae of getting curriculum revised because the standards are, are always changing right yeah. you know and sometimes they really do get uh, almost silly is it is it a, you know do you do you put the uh, publisher uh the city in which the publisher is located or yeah. or just put you know the state and i mean get down to the very granular but okay that's not the cause of my complaint i received because I'm, I'm getting my u.s history course through uh curriculum and today is the the full committee meeting and i received an email from the woman who is the head of the distance education curriculum committee, which is a kind of subcommittee of the larger committee. Uh, and she said, oh, I happen to notice you're going before the meeting today, uh, but that you had not clicked uh, on uh, the button that, that indicates this course can be taught fully online. Uh, and so I, I saw the email and I, you know, I immediately went to the curriculum outline and sure enough, uh, which is done online, it says how will the the delivery modality they call it how will it be offered and it said you know in on ground basically in a classroom traditionally and online and you had to check both and and the second one she was right hadn't checked and notice I, I used the passive voice there because I would have sworn when I went through the first time I didn't <laughs> I had indeed checked it because I teach that course in other words if it had gone through without approval for being an online course I'm out of a job basically you right. know so I duly uh, checked it was just a matter of you know putting the cursor on the button and clicking it, it was nothing too uh, arduous or anything but it, it had me thinking, you know, how do these things happen in these systems? You know, you think you have everything under control. You think it's going smoothly. You're pretty sure you literally clicked on the buttons, you know, <laughs> and, and only to find out on the day of the, you know, and I thought, well, what if it had gone through and I hadn't noticed or she hadn't notified me or something? And, uh, you know, I suddenly I'm faced what in, in the spring, you know, well, you're not going to be able to teach this class because you didn't click on that button uh, and you're out of a job, you know. Right. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's hard. I guess what I'm seeing is, you know, our perspectives right now after being, you know, effectively quarantined all these many months and living in the, in a political, you know, um, alter reality that, that we do of a, you know, a president who won't say he lost and, 
you know, a media that won't say he's a liar. And, you know, I mean, it, it tends to challenge one's handle on reality. You know, yeah. You, yeah. you think you got it, but maybe you don't. I, I love the idea that, you know, you just you have this you just have to click on a button and it makes things right. Um, because I feel like our society is, is it, to, to use this metaphor further, our society uh, is based on the idea that we have all these buttons we can press, but when we actually try to press them, we realize they're just painted on. <laughs> they're not connected to anything. <laughs> so we're constantly jamming our fingers in these buttons that are just not receptive at all to anything. You look. At I do that every time I cross the street, yeah. you know, at a light. You know, I yep. push that button, and we know there's there's no wiring behind it, right? <laughs> yeah. It just gives you the the reassuring sense that you've done something you were supposed to do. The illusion of control. Yeah. I, w- I told my friend once, this was my favorite thing I did to my friend when I was probably in middle school, that we were waiting at, at a light, and he started pressing the button, and he just kept pressing. I said, you know, every time you press that, you turn it on or off. And he's like, oh, no, I don't know. How- <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Which if it's is on or off now. Toggle on? Yeah. Toggle off. Well, now they have them, you know, for for us uh, folks who, you know, think pressing it more than once will somehow speed up the process. A voice activated Mm -hmm. thing. Have you heard this? That tells you, wait. Yep. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That's freedom. That's freedom, man. That's what I think that's what uh, John Locke was talking about when he talked about liberty. (laughs) A disembodied voice telling you to wait or go. (laughs) We're going to get to Mr. Locke later. I want here's what I want to do. I want to test our perception of reality. I want to find out if we have a, you know, a, a solid grasp of what's real and what isn't by uh, playing a little game here today. You up for that? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about how how darker our episodes have been. I think we need some games here to 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 lighten this mood a little bit. So yeah, hit me. All right, this is a game we've mentioned before, and it's one uh, a lot of fun. Uh, folks, you can play it at home if you like. It's called New York Times or The Onion. And what I do is I read you uh, a headline that appeared in one of those two uh, publications, we'll call them, all right? The New York Times or The Onion. Uh, and you have to guess which one is it belong to? And uh, I suppose our folks have heard of the New York Times, certainly, and most have probably uh, heard of The Onion, but I'll say right up front that The Onion is an avowedly satirical uh, spin on um, the media. Is that how you would describe The Onion, Josh? Yeah, uh, and it's, you know, I remember going to Chicago as, you know, in high school, and you'd have to get it out of like a, you know, one of those newspaper things, and you can only get it in Chicago, and then it starts spreading to other cities as a physical media and then uh, and then as a website. And it's somehow remained brilliant, you know, whatever, 30 years later, however long it's been going. So, yeah, still still so on point, I think, in its critique of media and society and and the rest. Yeah, still still classic for sure. So let me. OK, so let me get to it. Uh, we'll see how you do. So headline number one. Remember, it comes either from The New York Times or The Onion. The headline is this. Giuliani peddles election conspiracy and falsehoods. New York Times or Onion? I mean, that's New York Times. I, I, Giuliani is beyond satire, I think. That's, that's why I think it's got to be New York, New York Times. You can't be more ridiculous than, than he is at this point. So um, I'm going to say New York Times because, yeah, it's, it's, it's right in line with what we've come to expect from, from Demare. Yeah, and this is uh, America's mayor, is he not? The man who stood forward as a heroic figure in the uh, confused, chaotic aftermath of 9-11. His term at the time, I believe, uh, was running out uh, in New York as mayor, and there were those who were hoping to 
somehow either catapult him into, uh, you know, a national a leadership role, or at least extend, you know, his time there. Well, none of that happened, and everything that's happened ever since has has been, um, yeah, decidedly different. I, I was going to read you a little piece uh, from the article in case you want to change your your vote, though. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling you yet that you're right, <laughs> oh. and so I want to read a little piece from the actual article to see if it it helps uh, dissuade you from saying New York Times. Uh, Mr. Giuliani has repeatedly claimed that Democratic officials blocked Republican poll watchers from observing ballot counting in 10 different crooked Democratic cities, including Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Milwaukee, Reno, Phoenix, and Atlanta. And in the counties where Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are, he has said, the lack of access affected over 680,000 votes. All right, so you still want to stick with New York Times? I do. I was actually, um, I was following somebody who was live tweeting his, uh, as he was appearing before a court in, I think it was in Philadelphia, somewhere in Pennsylvania, and trying to make his case, and it was insane. Um, he was making a point, and then the, the, the lawyer for, for uh, the state was saying, well, the point you're just making isn't in your complaint at all, so I don't think I have to actually reply to that, because you, <laughs> there's no legal basis for it. Um, so, man, as I said, like, the Onion... If it, the Onion invented Giuliani, uh, it would make more sense than him being an actual person who's has a, a finger to the pulse of our of our uh, filet of fish eating president. I know, and I guess I should have used the Four Seasons landscaping example because there's no way you would have thought that was New York Times, right? Right, right, right. right. All right, so here's the second one. You know, President Obama has a, a memoir coming out. Uh, I believe maybe it's the first of, of, of two, the first installment of two. Is that correct? Yeah. The first of installment of two that I will not read. Yeah. Okay. And for which I think you told me he's been fronted uh, about, uh, what, $60 million plus? Yeah, $65 million advance. So. Okay. Being an ex-president so is good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get around to writing your memoirs, get <laughs> no. his agent, okay? $65 advance for my memoirs. <laughs> hey. All right, so you got to tell me, New York Times or Onion? Obama reveals that he sometimes regrets having turned America into an atheistic communist wasteland. (laughs) New York Times or Onion? That's got to be the Onion. Well, let's see. Let me read to you some from the article. See if that you want to change your vote, okay? From the article, from the uh, either the New York Times or the Onion. You think Onion? But here's what it says. Heartfelt introduction in the review of his memoir. Heartfelt introduction from Raytheon CEO Thomas Kennedy. Phrase, on the other hand, appears multiple times on every page. Entire chapter dedicated to memory of how incredible it felt to smoke nine cigarettes a day. (laughs) New York Times? Oh, man, that actually... Made me a little uh, uncertain. <laughs> I think I'm going to stick with the onion, but but that, I mean that seems like really plausible, actually. I, f- I felt just then your grip on reality maybe loosening a bit. Well, I mean, there. part of the problem is I've read some excerpts that have just been going around, and they're pretty terrible. So um, so I'm not sure I'm not sure what to what to believe anymore. All right, well, ding ding, you got that one right too, my friend. That was indeed. The Onion. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so you're on a uh, you're on a roll here. What do I right? win again? What what was my prize? 
You get the uh, a copy of Obama's memoir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three. How Iowa's governor went from dismissing mask mandates to ordering one herself. New York Times or Onion. Who's the Iowa governor? Is that one? She's uh, a, Kim, she's a, that would be Kim Reynolds. She's a Trump lady, right? Yes. Uh, I'm going to say New York Times. Well, let's see if this, I'll give you a clue, okay? Right. And see if you want to change your vote. Quote, I don't want to do this, Governor Kim Reynolds said. I don't want to do this. Joining a wave of Republican governors issuing new mask orders as her state faces a spiraling hospital crisis. I mean, it's too real. There's no parody there. It's, it's no satire. It's just the grim reality we're living in, I think. I thought I could trip you up with, I don't want to do this. No, I mean, that's, again, that, I, I that's wish... That's an actual I wish, statement. I wish we lived in a world where that didn't trip me up, but but that just confirmed to me how, how stupid our world is. I can see you've become hardened, haven't you? It's going <laughs> to take a lot more to outrage or fool you. <laughs> oh, man. Well... All right. Well, you just got the hat trick because that's correct. Uh, you want to try one more? Let's say... Let's do it. Go go for the big money now on Double this or last one. I get two memoirs or uh, or nothing. Mm-hmm. You, yes, when you'll get the second uh, Barack Obama memoir when it's published. Okay, if you get this correct, if not, you get nothing. Biden insists lack of cooperation from Trump administration won't interfere with four years of total political inaction. <laughs> I mean, the, this, is, this is a perfect one where, where it's expressing the reality, but I feel like it's doing it in an onion way. I'm going to well, say onion. Well, see if this helps. Let me read the first All line, right. and then you can tell me if it helps clear it up for you. Uh, folks... Regardless of whether the president accepts the results today or never, we are working around the clock to ensure that on day one, this team can hit the ground running, smack into a wall of partisan gridlock, while contributing absolutely <laughs> nothing of lasting value to the country. Yeah, that's that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my answer. So you say... New York Times. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no, you don't. no, this is recorded. You can't. You can't get Dang. away with that. All um, right. And that reminds All me. Right. I, mean, I love. I love that uh, the little passage you read. It reminded me. We were talking the other day about seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, but but imagining the tunnel is like painted on a, a brick wall, like <laughs> in the old Roadrunner cartoons. So I love the the, the brick wall of uh, of partisan gridlock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Roadrunner could pass right through it. You could, yeah. Not Wiley. Not Wiley Coyote. Yeah. Well, uh, you did well, uh, which leads me to say that your grip on reality is still pretty strong. Well, tenuous, but you know, it's tending it's tenuous. towards. Yeah. This didn't make me feel better about reality, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I wish more gonna... than New York, I wish more than New York Times stuff was was Onion articles. To be to be clear, uh, and I wish the Onion articles were not so accurate about our times. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It was supposed to be a kind of upbeat uh, assessment of things. But... No, no. You, now I feel worse. <laughs> this is what passes for, for a fun segment on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it had me thinking 
about um, a former uh, professor of mine, actually, a brilliant guy who we lost about a decade ago uh, to ALS. Uh, and that was the historian Tony Jutt. Mm. And uh, Tony uh, became pretty well known, you know, as a kind of public intellectual uh, type. He was, uh, you know, coming out of, of, of sort of Oxbridge, right? Cambridge yeah. uh, in, in, in Oxford and had uh, uh, spent some time in, in, uh, in Paris, you know, as a scholar and had done his work on, on modern European history and, and uh, made his way back ultimately uh, to England, then to the United States, where uh, by happenstance, uh, I managed to enroll in one of his classes uh, one summer. And uh, kind of hit it off, and, and he was a remarkable guy. And then he went on to, you know, even bigger and better things. At New York University. He started what's called the Remark Institute, Eric Maria Remark, the, the novelist, uh, to study uh, modern global issues and European issues especially. And, you know, did a lot of publishing in New York re Review of Books and various, you know, other uh, sort of media organs and whatnot. And, and really um, something that I think we need in these times, you know, became a kind of uh, respected public intellectual. And the fact that he was a historian, you know, was was uh, also great for those of us who are, you know, working in that lane. Uh, because it's not often that, you know, some of our better historians, they don't always get out, uh, out behind the academic, you know, the academic wall or whatever. We end up with, right. you know, our good buddy John Meacham, you know, hmm. not an mm -hmm. academic, uh, you know, doing a lot of the talking uh, ostensibly for the the history comedian, and, and well, our listeners know, you know, how that makes us feel. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so Tony was doing a lot of good work, uh, and uh, before he passed away uh, from this uh, terrible disease, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, he uh, published a book called "Ill Fares the Land," and it was a kind of summation for him of where we had uh, arrived you know, as as in this modern world, as a kind of culture, as a civilization, what we sometimes, you know, refer to uh, the West mm -hmm. or Western uh, civilization, something we've, you know, been talking a lot about on the, on the program. And he starts it by saying, you know, something that was kind of disarming looking back, because I hadn't looked at the book, in, you know, in several years. Something is profoundly wrong with the way we live life today. Something is profoundly wrong with the way we live life today. And so you and I were talking about that, and that's where we uh, managed to get our title for this, epi uh, this particular episode, episode 30. Something is profoundly wrong. He goes on to say, for 30 years, we have made a virtue out of the pursuit of material self-interest. Indeed, its very pursuit now constitutes whatever remains of our sense of collective purpose. We know what things cost, but have no idea what they are worth. We no longer ask of a judicial ruling or a legislative act. Is it good? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it right? Will it help, he asks, bring about a better society or a better world? And I think, Josh, uh, and certainly you can speak to this for your, your own sake, I think that for my part, a lot of what we wanted to do with this podcast, History Against the Grain, is to bring those kinds of questions, uh, that kind of moral clarity, you might say, you know, back into the center of our discussions, not just about history, but as as we see the historical legacy, you know, that Tony's speaking about there, about the times we live in now, 
you know, and, 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 and whether, you know, we got it right. Or, as he suggests, we somehow got it profoundly wrong. Yeah, that's, it's such a powerful thing. I, I mean, that's just such a dynamite opening to, to the book as well. You, you, um, you know right where you stand, you know, after the first few sentences, it seems. Yeah, there's, there's something really powerful about just asking the question. Uh, you know, this is the thing I've been thinking about more and more as I prepare, you know, units for my, my classes. I think about history as I think about particular moments in history. Um, and particularly within this quote-unquote Western tradition that, that we're supposedly part of, it's the question of why do we think this thing is good? Um, do we think it's good because it actually, as, as uh, Tony Jute uh, suggested, makes our world better? Or do we think it good, it's good because it fits in with a set of narratives that um, are formative to how we think about the world? And I think in a lot of cases, those things that we, we hold up as like the, the paragons of, of, again, this quote-unquote Western culture or Western society or the modern world, they're not actually good at all or they're not fundamentally good. Um, and often have a lot of negative consequences to how we live our lives and how we structure our societies. So, I mean, again, that's just, to me, the fundamental question we should be asking, not, you know, does this fit with how we want to think about the world, but is it actually good? Does it actually serve a good purpose? Um, and I love, you know, you talk about moral clarity. I love the moral clarity of, of, of Jude's writing. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, as we move into the, this segment, you know, I want to make it clear, you know, what what we do every episode is not, you know, just a lot of grousing, belly aching. Okay, we do some not, of that. Not only that, yeah, uh, let's be clear. <laughs> but, you know, we are serious about trying to understand, you know, how the world that we live in now, how it was constructed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what part of what the, the, the battle we're fighting here is to show that it was constructed. Yeah. That it wasn't just, you know, some inevitable result of something that, you know, has taken us all along for a ride as kind of captive passengers. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's uh, let's move to this next segment where we talk about, you know, the construction of these systems and why they so often pass themselves off as ideal and idealistic. Uh, but as we can see by looking at their construction, uh, there's there's not that kind of clarity you know, when you get to the the sort of the basis of them, you know, and and so uh, in effect, we're dealing with a kind of a paradox, you know, of, of systems that so often profess to be progressive and, you know, liberty enhancing and, and humane, uh, but uh, ultimately end up being something very different. And don't you try to etch it or permanently sketch it or you're gonna catch a bad All right, so, you know, we've mentioned this book before in recent episodes, but it's one I've delved into a little bit more uh, by a Stanford history professor named Priya called Time's Monster, How History Makes History. And I'm going to use just an example uh, of, a, of a person that she writes about, Josh, to kind of set up the larger piece that you want to do in the conversation we want to have, <clears throat> again, about this, you know, this seeming paradox of the modern world of these systems, uh, you know, liberal democracies in particular, you know, that profess to have such enlightened, progressive, humane, you know, values at their core, but then end up, you know, countenancing and and, uh, justifying, you know, some of the very worst uh, things of history. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the example uh, I want to borrow from uh, her book is that of a uh, an Enlightenment era. That is a guy who he lived in the late 18th century, late 1700s into the uh, the 1800s. His life sort of spanned that uh, century divide from the Enlightenment into the Industrial Era uh, in Europe. Uh, who uh, she's actually written about in in a full book book length. Uh, treatment, but here just offers as a kind of illustration of what is her main concern, you know, for uh, her book, uh, Times Monsters. And his name was Samuel Galton. And uh, Galton was an an Englishman who uh, came to be one of the leading arms manufacturers uh, in in England. Uh, in the late 18th, early 19th uh, century. Uh, she calls him, in fact, the most important gun manufacturer of his age. And he was a guy that embodies a lot of this sort of paradoxical, you know, uh, seemingly contradictory qualities that we're ferreting out uh, today. I mean, on the one hand, he's he's a product of the English Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he... Uh, and I don't think that's an oxymoron, is it? But but anyway, <laughs> the English and the English Enlightenment. Uh, he went to a school in Birmingham uh, where his teacher was Joseph Priestley, and Joseph Priestley was maybe the most distinguished scientist, certainly chemist of the you know that age in in England. He's he's the discoverer of oxygen. Is Joseph Priestley? You can look him up. How did people breathe before that? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, it's the last thing you discover, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you just do it so naturally. So here's a guy who, who provides the chemical analysis of the thing that no one ever thinks about until they can't do it anymore. You right. know, so this is one of the, you know, the great figures then of this age of science in, in England and the Enlightenment. Uh, and that's and that's uh, Galton's teacher, Joseph Priestley. But Priestley was also a guy who went out on a limb and argued for freedom of conscience uh, and had a fair number of detractors. And I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, cracking wise here. You know, I mean, this argument that followed in a kind of intellectual train from from John Locke and others forward, you know, that, for example, you shouldn't be um, persecuted, save for your religious beliefs. And, and you know, the Enlightenment's one of these very interesting kind of liminal times, you know, where, you know, it's not that long since you've been getting, you know, like witch trials, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and or or as, as Foucault showed, you know, people being executed publicly in all these incredibly heinous ways. Right. Uh, and yet with one foot moving into an, uh, you know, an era of toleration and humanity and these self-professed values. So Priestley and his student Galton then both um, sort of take this stand for freedom of conscience and, and that sort of thing. Now, the reason, oh, and one more point about Galton. He was a Quaker. He belonged to the English uh, Protestant sect known as Quakers, right? Who famously, rather famously in the history of, of you know, English Protestantism, were probably best known as what? Quakers. Well, they were abolitionists. I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but they Ab- were. They're abolitionists yeah. and they were pacifists. Right, 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 right. Right? So they spoke uh, ultimately against slavery, the ending of slavery. They, they championed, but also... You know, were were decided pacifists and and you know uh, held out that war was you know immoral and all these things. Well, at least that was you know that was their jacket. But Galton himself, as I've already told you, was a leading arms manufacturer, 
even mm-hmm. as he was a, a, a Quaker pacifist. So the reason I, I set it up this way, Josh, is because if all we're going to do is have these straw men, you know, I mean, to, to even, you know, the Trumps, you know, or the Erdogan's or the Putins of our own time, you know, or, or to pick the low hanging fruit from the 20th century. And there's plenty to choose from, <laughs> you know, the Edi Amin's and the yeah. uh, you know, Adolf Hitler's and he's. You know, it was sort of these these figures from history who, you know, seem so demonstrably evil, you right. know, and even kind of one dimensionally so, mm-hmm. you know, then then you're you're really, as I say, you're really going for the low hanging fruit. But if you take and as this point, you know, Priya Satya's point in your book is it gets a little trickier, doesn't it? When you have these individuals who are ostensibly you know, supportive of freedom of conscience, you know, have these sort of ethical values, you know, whether it's tied to a religious profession, like the Quakers of pacifism or the abolition of slavery, who then, uh, like Galton, end up being, you know, progenitors of of modern war and empire through the development of an industrial gun, you know, system, right? I mean, it it strikes me, and I think, uh, you know, you can say that, I like those kinds of contradictions in history. You know, I don't want it laid out too cleanly for me. What do you think? No, I mean, I, that's I think the thing we've been arguing about since since episode one is that those those clean histories, you know, as I called it in an, an earlier episode, the straight lines in history um, mm-hmm. are almost always misleading. And they're always, I mean, misleading. They're, they're trying to take you directly where they want you to go as opposed to, you know, asking the kind of questions that we would we would rather ask. And so, yeah, it's in those contradictions. It's in those those complications that I think um, the historian's most needed, um, not to just tell a comforting story about how we got here. Exactly. And, you know, it's not the other, and I, and I should hasten to add this too, because I do this with my students a lot. You know, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, while Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, was mm-hmm. president, the largest single mass execution of prisoners took place in American history, and it was unrelated to the Civil War. It was uh, the Native people, the Dakota people, right, of, of Minnesota who were executed uh, for uh, resisting uh, the, you know, the, the reservation mandates, mm-hmm. right? And for, you know, waging war against the U.S. government. So, you know, Lincoln the Emancipator or Lincoln the author of the largest single-day mass execution in American history. I mean, uh, you know, look, I like Lincoln. You know, I mean, I like his <laughs> writings during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're forced to confront this seeming contradiction, then you have your work cut out for you. But I think ultimately, and, and you can say, I mean, don't you think the rewards in terms of, of the insight we gain greater if we can kind of puzzle through these things? Well, yeah, I've been just been thinking as you've been talking, just the, the you know, the psychological effect of, of believing something so strongly and then continually seeing things that go against that and then still holding on to this, this idea or this ideal, I guess, that no, no, this is how it has to work. This is how it has to work, even as all these counterexamples keep showing up. That's, I mean, we talk about this all the time. That's not, a, that's not healthy. It's not healthy for our society. It's not healthy for us as individuals to constantly be ignoring the reality that's, that's right there because of our desire to hold on to you know, this set of ideas, this set of assumptions, this set of ideals that um, that aren't worth the effort, I guess, of, of trying to hold on to in the face of, of so much counter evidence. Yeah, I agree. I really do. And I think, you know, as again, as I sometimes tell my students, look, if it seems like I'm just, you know, taking uh, whatever, you know, pot shots, you know, at, at, at the United States or something, you know, or U.S. history or something, uh, look, 
you know, we're the ones who put it on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. <laughs> so, so if I'm going to tee off on, on some nativist immigrant policy, then maybe we shouldn't have, you know, boasted about it globally you know, right. before doing that. You know, in other words, I think if you go to that step, in other words, Hitler never said he wasn't going to be brutal. You know, yeah. in other words, uh, you know, they didn't the, the, the Nazis didn't try that hard, you know, any more than really Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump pretty much in that first, you know, gilded uh, you know, campaign speech at the Trump Tower, you know, basically said, oh, I think Mexicans are rapists and killers. And, you know, it's it's when folks come out and say, like Lincoln did, you know, the last best hope of mankind. Right. You know, a new birth of freedom, you know, even as. You know, a, a few dozen you know, Dakota resistors are being executed on a scaffold, you know, somewhere just outside of Minneapolis. Then, yeah, it asks more of us to understand. Now, what Priya Satya does, the, the subtitle of her book, it's called Times Monsters, but the subtitle is How History Makes History. You know, she wants to argue that basically to understand a lot of this, we have to understand what was becoming a kind of dominant historical sensibility in the 18th century, that is around the time of the Enlightenment, uh, in which the growing concern among intellectuals, uh, among political leaders, uh, you know, sort of economic interests, somebody like Adam Smith is writing The Wealth of Nations, right, in 1776, that there was a a growing concern with how to somehow if not perfect, at least to follow progressively a course of history in the secular world. Uh, in other words, uh, yes, uh, our, our boy Galton is a Quaker, and, and that's his religious faith, but he was very much a man of this world. He's, he's an arms manufacturer. He becomes a banker <laughs> at mm-hmm. one point. Uh, and so these uh, intellectuals are concerned with how to create you know, a, a greater, more just, more humane, more progressive world that we can live in. And, and what Satya says is that they borrow this idea from religion that was popular. It's, it's a Greek word. It, it, it comes through various channels um, theologically, uh, but certainly it was a part of a lot of the kind of Protestant, Christian Protestant thinking at the time. And that is eschatology. Mm-hmm. And eschatology is this idea that there is an end point to something, a kind of a kind of resolution point that we're all going in a certain direction and that at the end it will all be, you know, resolved. Right. Uh, in strictly religious terms, uh, Christian terms, it might be something like uh, what a millennium, you yeah. know, a kind of coming of of Christ to, you know, uh, redeem you know, the people or something, you know, of that nature. I mean, there's different variations on this thing. But in secular terms, when you apply an eschatology to history, it's that this idea of historical progress and a kind of better day coming for humanity is the equivalent, right? So it has this fundamentally kind of optimistic notion that history itself is taking us in a certain direction and that that direction in its own way has been providentially inspired. Now, now, Josh, when I was in early in my career, I was doing a lot of research 
in antebellum American history, you know, 19th century, early 19th century U.S. history. And I was reading newspapers from the day and, you know, correspondence and sermons and public speeches. And it became very clear to me pretty early on that a word that kept coming across time and again in these, these sources was providence mm-hmm. or providential, you know. And it was an idea at the time that... <clears throat> As they would say, the hand of providence was guiding the affairs of humankind. Right. Right. That there was a kind of motive or volitional quality to the way history itself was going. And I mean, in crass terms, that becomes manifest destiny, right? That we're moving across a continent in um, harmony with a kind of divine plan. You know, uh, a lot of it draws upon you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, Old Testament stuff, you know, as Christians would call Old Testament ideas of a a chosen people and, you know, and a direction, a a promised land. All right. So all of that idea then uh, coming out of this religious tradition then is sort of informing the historical sensibility. The historical counterpart to that is that history is going in a certain direction. Now, the reason this is so important as she says, the historian Priya says, is that for a man like Samuel Galton, that meant that uh, morally questionable events, uh, to put it mildly, you know, particularly wars and, and, and those kinds of things, that morally questionable events were now endowed with purpose and meaning, and that that meaning would re- be revealed at the narrative end of history. Mm -hmm. So while he was a good Quaker, he could look at his arms manufacturing. And by the way, during the Napoleonic Wars, business was booming (laughs) for Mr. Galton. Yeah, got a good run there. Because they're selling all these weapons, right? You know, being used for purely destructive purposes. But even war in itself in this eschatology of history becomes a kind of instrumentality to advance us to the next level of our progress. That is the working out of natural law, in this case, through warfare. And and it wasn't just because these guys are, you know, um, you know, have no empathy or something. It's because they justify what they call, you know, these necessary evils, right, for a greater good. Mm-hmm. And the greater good would be that the cause of Western civilization would be advanced through these conflicts, you know, to the next level, as I say, of progress. So that war itself could even be seen then as an instrument of progress. And thus something like patriotism, you know, could be viewed as the, you know, the highest ideal of the nation in support of that progress such that, you know, even disastrous events could ultimately bring out, as one of these thinkers said, the most happy and desirable state of things. So Galton is responding to the critique of his fellow Quakers who are saying, how can you live with yourself? And he says, well, because we are all living in a historical moment the rise of a military industrial society that itself is the instrument of providence. 
that coming through this, and by, and by the way, he says, I as an individual have no power to change that. Mm -hmm. In other words, if it's not me doing this, it's going to be someone else right. because this is providence playing out. In other words, this is the script as God has written it. Uh, and I have found myself in this position now to help play through this script. It almost sounds right. like it's like a secular Calvinism or something. I don't know if it's secular, but it's mm -hmm. it's almost Calvinism mm -hmm. as applied not to the individual, you know, um, believer, but to to the society and the and the world as a whole. That this stuff is all preordained. So, um, mm -hmm. and and we've been saved or not saved already, right? So we can just kind of go along <laughs> this path and right. And what's going to happen and, is going to happen. And but I bear no responsibility for that because you know I'm just mm -hmm. playing exactly. my part in the in a story that's already been told, basically. That, that's right. And you could even score it with your conscience in that mm -hmm. way. I mean, she talks about these guys have to do a lot of what she calls conscience management. Yeah. Because it's something that on the face would seem so abhorrent, you know, so morally wrong. You know, taking this bigger view of historical eschatology, of providence, you know, they would use phrases like, we're in, in the hands of providence. In the right. hands of providence, you know, that there's this kind of greater power. And it's a fundamentally progressive one because what you're seeing is all this remarkable technological development, right? You know, I mean, on some level, it was just as exciting now as getting the new 5G iPhone or something. <laughs> and, and probably just as destructive ultimately. But how many people, you know, in, in the vanguard of this are saying that the 5G iPhone is an instrument of destruction, you know, the, the marketing, the, the sheer enthusiasm for technology and such tends to carry the momentum forward. And so even though it was war in, in his day, Galton's day, it seems to be war with a purpose. You know, as one of his fellow Quakers said, what can't be cured must be endured. <laughs> yeah, what can't be cured must be endured, right? And and you know what's so interesting to me about this is I'll, I'll wrap this part up, is that a guy like Galton, you know, says he's just an instrument of of providence, you know. But at the same time, what is that that ethos of the industrial system? It was purely individualistic, right? This kind of the individual. This is why all these guys had these little statues of Napoleon sitting on their desks, you know, mm -hmm. because they thought. As the, as the exemplar of individual accomplishment, you know, and even in a country like the United States, this idea of, you know, working yourself up the ladder, that kind of Horatio Alger from yeah. nothing to something, had this strong individualist component to it, but not when it came to these big picture views. Yes, as an individual, you can make yourself into, you know, a, a mechanic by trade with a talent for innovation. Maybe you become a gun manufacturer, mm -hmm. you know, um, which, by the way, the history of the Industrial West is replete with these examples, right? Uh, it was the Springfield Armory in Massachusetts that gave rise to interchangeable parts and yeah. what becomes the basis for mass production. So a lot of this is coming out of military technology and that sort of thing. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy when I was teaching at Weber State in Utah. He was actually from Ogden, Utah. John uh, was a great genius gunsmith in America. And I'll have to come back later at the end of the show to, to show you my memory hasn't failed completely. But that, that created like having scores of patents on improvements to the gun. 
And so he became this very wealthy guy. You know, I lived just down the block from the Winchester Mystery House, yeah. the West Winchester Firearms Company, right? So uh, you get this impetus for technological change. It's all very exciting in a way because it's technology that is bringing about a presumed kind of what? A kind of mastery over nature that mankind has never seen before. And so you couldn't help but be kind of, uh, you know, astonished even as it was leading to these, you know, horrific, you know, kinds of, of ends with, with warfare and such. And then later in empire, and you're going to talk about this, but, but for a guy like Galton, you know, where our paradox, it seemingly is a paradox for us. How could a, an otherwise erstwhile ethical conscientious person who sees himself as a man of the enlightenment, as a progressive thinker, square that with the obvious harm that his own, you know, industrial interests are creating, you know, on the battlefield and elsewhere. And for Priya Satya, at least it's because there is this kind of historical sensibility, a kind of a historical eschatology that says, well, it's all going in the right direction. And we'll see that if we just have the courage to follow it through. You know, it, it, as you were talking there, it just got me thinking about how, how much of kind of this Western Ideology. So, how many of the Western ideologies are really just attempts to moralize the the immoral? Right. That that there, mm-hmm. you know, so much mm-hmm. this comes out of this this conscience management that that uh, Satya talked about, and, and and you mentioned that we're doing things that are clearly not right. Whether it's you know the slave trade or the plantation complex or you know this this emphasis on warfare for you know for Quakers. And what that's going to inspire is a set of ideas that are ultimately there specifically for the purpose. And I, I don't think they saw it that way, but that's, you know, as you as you look at this, it becomes pretty clear that that what they're really doing is satisfying their own need to feel as if they're good people, even though they're doing <laughs> they're doing fundamentally bad things. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, it was John Browning, uh, oh, yeah. the Mormon gunsmith yeah. from Ogden, Utah, who was this, uh, you know, this kind of self-taught genius and create all these patents for more efficient firearms. And uh, so from Galton, the Quaker, to John Browning, the Mormon, exemplifying what you're talking about here. Mm. Yeah, and that's, you know, what I want to talk more about in, in this this next segment here. So let's uh, let's get to segment three. No common sense. I've recently grown cognizant of uh, there's no point in polishing mud. In the state of conflict, the rest have quirks. Ushers have flashlights and I got worse for the ways that you treat me and violent styles and the things so discreetly. Let it go on. Let it go on. So I think it was last week we were talking a little bit about uh, Pankaj Mishra, um, this this Indian scholar, writer, thinker, historian, novelist, jack of all trades. And and I kind of want to start with him right now as well. Um, He recently... In actually September, did an interview with another one of our favorites, Daniel Imawar, um, historian and I think political scientist as well. And I, I want to start not even with the content of the article, but with the title. And the title is "You Can Only See Liberalism from the Bottom." Uh, the idea being that Pankaj Mishra, as an Indian, um, is able to see what li- liberalism was truly about. And I want to steal that a little bit for this segment because I also think. That to the extent that you can only see liberalism from the bottom, you can also only understand the modern world from the bottom as well. Um, that too often we allow the, the the powerful in our world to tell the story of the modern world. 
And I think what that tends to do is to present a set of assumptions that um, you know tend to glorify those who are telling the stories. This is not new stuff. History is written by the victors, as I'm sure many people have heard. But it got me thinking about a way of of presenting this history, um, not from the voice of of those who who went out, not from the victors of this system, but those who are watching the world being fundamentally changed by this process of European imperialism and all that went along with it. Um, and so I want to walk you through a little bit, both you, Chris, and then also our listeners, some of my thought process in kind of developing this set of ideas. And by the way, I'm not trying to suggest these are totally unique ideas, but just uh, the way my thinking has been going. Um, I've always done in my modern world history class a unit on modernization and westernization that was meant to kind of present how people in different parts of the non-European world were reacting to the new reality of, of European power. How societies that had once been confident, had once been powerful, had once had their own sense of, of rightness and, uh, and justification, now felt uh, as they were placed more and more under the thumb of a few relatively small Western states. And what I realized as I was doing that, that uh, lesson, I guess maybe even this semester, is that I have a lot of assumptions that I didn't realize were hidden in that presentation. And one of the key assumptions I had was the tendency to present the Westernizers as forward-thinking and the, and the opposition as conservative traditionalists. And so just to clarify my terms here, I tend to see modernization as um, the idea that a society like Japan, like China, like the Ottoman Empire, or choose other examples, Egypt, India, whatever you want to choose, um, that they can progress, they can reach the level of these great European nations, these great European empires, simply by modernizing their society, meaning largely through machinery, through um, you know the kind of material aspects of Western society. All right, so modernization suggests that we, the Japanese, can reach that level simply by changing how we make things, changing how we build our society, our, our 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 structures build our machines, all that kind of stuff. Whereas Westernization tends to suggest that catching up, to use the, the term that's often used with the West, is going to require some kind of more of a wholesale change, right? That, that we are going to have to fundamentally change not just the physical manifestations of our society, but how we think, how we dress, how we talk, what we think about, what we talk about. Uh, all those things are going to need, to need to change so we can become not just more like the West, uh, in terms of, of material, but we can become more like them in terms of culture and ways of thought and all the rest. And, and as I, I was just suggesting, there is a tendency, and I think I, I inherited this tendency, to look at the Westernizers as the progressives, right? as the, the clear-eyed realists, and to look at those who oppose them as being conservatives, as being traditionalists, as being stuck in the past. And I think you see this a lot in, in the way this is presented. Now, the reality is that the, the, the so-called traditionalists often had a very complex view of Western ideas and often had a clear sense of the dangers of the West than their opponents did. And I just want to give you a couple examples of this. Um, in Japan, uh, we get this, this debate, and the debate is being you know carried on by, by a number of different people, but we can kind of think of two individuals as being fundamental to this, this back and forth. One is a, um, a Japanese scholar who serves one of the main daimyo, uh, one of the main local lords, in Tokugawa, Japan, that's Aizawa Seishisai. Um, and he is a, a guy who writes, you know, the, the grand history of Japan. Uh, he, he writes kind of the contemporary history of, of the Japanese Isles. 
And, you know, this is the kind of history that we would critique on the show if we were living in 1825, because it's it's pure kind of mythologizing narrative, um, which, you know, traces the the line of Japanese emperors back to uh, the sun deity, Amaterasu, and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but say, uh, I'm sorry, Aizawa also has a very clear view of, of some of the dangers of this new presence of Westerners. He is opposed um, by another samurai, another scholar named Sakuma, Sakuma Shozan. And Sakuma was famous for his belief that, quote unquote, Eastern ethics, um, the Japanese also use this term kokutai, which means something like the, the Japanese essence or the, the, the essence of the society, uh, that Eastern ethics or the essence of Japan could exist separate from Western science and industry. So using the terms I introduced earlier, he is kind of a modernizer, right? That we can keep who we are while also inviting in Western science and industry. And by doing that, by adding that to uh, what we are, to that essence, we can reach the level of these Western societies who are now, you know, basically banging on our door trying to get in. Aizawa, when he, when he kind of confronted this, this argument of Sakuma, um, that, you know, these two things can exist almost compartmentalized, right? In two different parts of your brain, you can have science in one area and then culture and ethics in another area. He says, quote, Aizawa says, to say that we can accept Western science, although we must reject Western moral teaching, is like telling people that although the mainstream of a river is poisoned, yet they can safely drink from the side streams. So what Aizawa recognized in a way that Sakuma did not and a lot of other uh, modernizers did not is that knowledge is all tied together, right? That it's impossible to just take one aspect of it with also getting, you know, to use uh, Aizawa's concept, getting poisoned from uh, from areas you didn't expect to. You see similar debates in, in, in other societies as well between these kind of modernizer or westernizers and then those who are more suspicious of, of what this actually is going to entail, um, who are more aware, I'll say, about what will be lost if they adopt you know, all these ideas from the West. In, in China, again, just to, to give you two figures within a larger debate, Feng Guifen is a Chinese Confucian scholar who becomes um, aware of Westerners in the city of Shanghai and aware of Western ideas. And he comes to a similar conclusion as, as Sakuma Shozan. He says, quote, this is probably the quote that's associated with him maybe more often than, than not, is that um, he says, what we have to learn from the barbarians, meaning the Westerners, is one thing only, solid ships and effective guns. Meaning that, you know, Chinese civilization is no worse than it ever has been. It's just as, as, um, as powerful as ever. But what the Westerners have is just the material, right? The solid ships and effective guns. If we bring those things in, then we will uh, ultimately be just like them. Yan Fu, another thinker of the time, is going to oppose this. And, and like uh, Aizawa, he's going to make the case that no, 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 these things, you can't just have the ships and guns. You've got to take the other stuff as well. So again, this is a debate that's happening in a lot of different societies. And as I noted as well, there's this tendency to be sympathetic to those who are most willing to cast aside all the old things and adopt all the new things and to see the other side as stuck in the past, to use a phrase that's probably used too often. So we can dismiss the critics as traditionalists, we can dismiss them as conservatives, but as I'd like to suggest, their critiques were often spot on on the one hand, but also I think their viewpoints were often more complex than is sometimes allowed. Um, again, Aizawa is, is a traditionalist in so many ways, um, but he is not blind to the reality of Western power. He, he, he uh, acknowledges the dangers that the West provides or, or, or uh, symbolizes. 
And he's merely looking for a way that's uh, going to be different from just outright borrowing of everything that he feels is ultimately going to undermine the entire social fra- fabric. Um, so just to give you, you know, some sense of of these critics and, and how they were able to see, you know, to use the phrase I, early, I used earlier, the modern world from below, um, we can start with uh, an Indian writer, uh, you know, writes one of the first novels of modern India, uh, a, a, a writer named Bankam Chandra Chatterjee. Sh- uh, he says, quote, the world has never seen men as tyrannical and powerful as the people who first founded the Britannic Empire in India. The English who came to India in those days were affected by an epidemic, stealing other people's wealth. The word morality had disappeared from their vocabulary. So, you know, we were, we were talking earlier, you were talking earlier about this, this conscience management that goes on in, in the West as they tried to moralize the immoral. But what you often find in the societies that were being impacted by this new power structure is that kind of conscious management didn't work on them. Right? They saw things as they were. They saw the English as not purveyors of a bunch of liberal ideas that were meant to bring progress and liberation to all societies, but essentially as a group of violent thieves who would do anything to gain more wealth and more power. Um, one of Chatterjee's contemporaries, a little bit older uh, writer and scholar, Budev Mukhopadhyay, uh, wrote in 1856, quote, the effort to conquer other people's lands is on increase and becomes more intense with time among Europeans. There's a sharp edge to their thirst for material pleasures, and it keeps getting sharper. These do not indicate any enhancements of moral standards or any prospect thereof. It would be logical to, logical to conclude their descendants would also inherit their penchant for marauding. If thus Europe does not need external control, who does? So what do you, what do you think of, of, of those viewpoints, you know, especially in contrast to what you're presenting about um, Samuel Galt, Galton earlier and just that, that broader view that Satya was, was uh, setting up? Well, you know, I was just thinking uh, that going on about the same time here in North America, you know, you have this expansive move, territorial gain by the Anglo uh, state, that is the United States, uh, across the, uh, you know, the continent. Uh, and as I sometimes suggest to my students, you know, even though we, we enshrine that in, in our own as kind of eschatology of history <laughs> as the frontier. Right. And, and, and Turner famously, the Frederick Jackson Turner, the historian, you know, called it the frontier thesis, where he said, it's, it's that historical movement that creates the liberal, democratic, uh, progressive state that the United States becomes. In other words, grounding in the actual conquest of Native peoples, what is supposed to be the wellspring of America's progressive development right. that then gives support to all those liberal values and such. And so I, as I suggest to my students, I guess it depended on which side of the frontier you were on, huh? Yep. Yeah, I mean, th- these these illusions that are being, you know, uh, presented by by the conquerors essentially just don't look, they, they don't look like anything, right? They, you know, I guess it's almost like the, the emperor has no clothes, right? The, the emperor is standing there naked and saying, look at these fine clothes. And people around him are saying, "Well, no, you're you're just naked. There's just nothing there, right? This this morality, this progress, this uh, liberation that you're supposedly talking about, just I looks thought like you weren't gonna. I thought you weren't gonna bring up Trump this episode. Josh, <laughs> can't, the, I can't help it. The naked emperor. It'll okay, be it'll ahead. be gone soon. But uh, <laughs> but you know what you see in Chatterjee, what you see in uh, Mukhopadhyay, is that what they see is not those those kind of enlightenment ideals, but they see violence and they see um, 
they see theft, right? That's that's what appears to them about the West. Now there are there are plenty of Indians who buy into um, you know these these Western ideals that see that through their own contributions to British Empire in India, for instance, that they can also rise in uh, influence and status and wealth as well. But there are always these guys who maybe don't make it their way into as many uh, compendiums of of Indian literature and this kind of stuff, who don't always have their voices heard outside of India itself. In, in, in this particular case, who are uh, really seeing things very clearly. And what again, what they're seeing is the violence and the theft that um, Western civilization really represented to so many people around the world. And it's, by the way, it's not only, you know, Indians who saw this. To give one last quote about this, um, maybe it's not the last one, but another one. Um, in 1838, an English writer named Emily Eden was traveling around India, and she stopped in, in the city of Delhi, for a time, once this grand imperial city full of amazing architecture and wealth and the, the home of the Mughal emperors and all this kind of stuff. And she uh, could only feel disappointed upon arriving. She says, quote, such stupendous, stupendous remains of power and wealth passed and passing away. And somehow I feel that we horde English have just gone and done it, merchandised it, revenued it, and spoiled it, spoiled it all. So even in 1838, she was already seeing the effects and already, I think, acknowledging what would become clear much later on is that in this thirst for wealth and this thirst for markets and this thir thirst for producers of, of raw materials uh, and consumers of, of finished goods, what has happened is that the world has been, you know, to use a much later metaphor, it's been paved over. Uh, the beauty has been sapped out of it. And what's left is just a group of people uh, who can be merchandised to, revenued. I like that phrase. Money can be taken from them. And then the whole thing is being spoiled as a result. Emily Eden, by the way, is traveling in uh, India a year before the outbreak of the Opium War. Um, the first Opium War in, in China between the British and the Chinese would break out in 1839. And of that war, uh, Mukhopadhyay would note, quote, virtue does not always triumph. In fact, victory often lies with the unrighteous. And so again, we hear these stories from below, the triumphal stories that are, are so prevalent, I think, even in modern tellings of these stories. Because what often happens, I think, you know, in contemporary versions of this is that we can say, well, this was bad and this was bad, but we're still lauding the civilization that did those things. We're still talking about liberty. We're still talking about, uh, you know, reason and rationality. We're still talking about the ideals of Western civilization. But as you were talking about with, you know, the frontier, you know, as we see in this case of the British conquest of India, those things aren't very convincing to those who are ground under the foot of this process of power. They don't sound very convincing to those who are being robbed and murdered in their own homes, essentially, for the pursuit of the wealth and power that, that these Western societies were really searching for. So my point in all this is not that Western science and technology and organizational principles and even political systems are necessarily bad. You know, even some of the most committed anti-imperialist thinkers in the non-European world generally understood the need to adopt the most current scientific, technological, and even political ideals into their societies. You get, you know, uh, Muslim thinkers who uh, believe that Islamic societies need to go back to the first principles of Islam, that they need, they, they've kind of lost their way. But even some of these guys are saying, but we also need to reconcile Islam and the Quran with modern science and, and modern ways of thinking. Um, you know, there's a guy, Olive Ghani, who is a, a, a major Islamic thinker of the late 19th century. And that's his view. And he goes country to country, he goes from place to place. 
and consist, is consistent in the idea that the West is bad. The West is destroying our societies. The West is uh, destroying Islam. But if Islam's ever going to uh, be able to recover from this, then it has to be able to reconcile these things together. We've got to be able to look at science and, and use scientific principles along with our religious principles and our religious ideas. You see an entire Hindu renaissance in India in the 19th century, led by people who are absolutely not secular people, right? They believe in Hinduism. They believe in the beauty and the truth and the wisdom of, of these Hindu sources, but also come to believe that that needs to be matched with a clear view of a, of a, a world of science and technology that can truly elevate their societies beyond what they have become. They understand that their societies have uh, fallen into hard times. They understand that the West has gotten more powerful, but uh, they also at the same time believe that there are things to learn from the West. It's just not the things the West thinks they should be learning. So the danger didn't come from the set of practical ideas and approaches, the danger from the West rather, but rather from a set of ideological assumptions that European imperialists brought with them and spread even as they conquered, killed, and ruled. Um, I want to quote a little bit from an a Indian Muslim poet, Akbar Ilahabadi, who is one of the shrewder thinkers of, I think, the 19th century, uh, certainly an anti-imperialist, anti-British in many ways, um, but one who, who understood that physical might was only one aspect of European imperialism, that essentially the physical uh, manifestations of the empire, the conquering and the killing, were being done for a particular kind of purpose. He says, quote, in one of his poems, he's, he writes these kind of satirical poems. He's the onion of, of India in the 19th century. <laughs> he says, those of the West change their opponent's nature, right? So, you know, he, he makes the case earlier in the poem that imperialism existed in the quote-unquote East. Uh, there's a long history of, he says, Easterners breaking other people's heads. Uh, but in the West, they want to change their opponent's nature, not just break their heads, but change their nature. He says, quote, the guns have gone and now come the professors, right? And the idea being uh, that they're going to be the ones who then teach people a new way of thinking and in doing so, ultimately uh, create an ideology that justifies and legitimizes that Western power. He goes on to say, before they murder us, they chloroform us. We ought to render thanks that they are kind. There's that satire that I was talking about. And then, you know, maybe the, the line of his that stuck out the most to me, um, I've been thinking about this for a better part of a week now because it just hit me so hard. He says, of the British in this case, um, you never cease proclaiming that Islam spread by the sword. You have not deigned to tell us what it is the gun has spread. And so again, what we see from him is this clear-eyed view of the West, which he sees as not just a manifestation of, of power and force, not only that, but also one that is trying to spread a set of ideas. And, and I love the, the quote because um, what's pretty clear from it is that Westerners are not very open about what actually they're trying to spread with those uh, w with, with the guns, basically. Maybe the guns made by uh, Samuel Galton. Yeah, it's a, a lot of food for thought there. Uh, unless we not, you know, just instantly make the connection because you, you talk about the way it's been working on you the last week or so, but, you know, the things that we talk about that are happening in our political culture, which also, you know, admit of this kind of, uh, you know, vile or, you know, uh, rascal element, you know, of, of, you know, men on the make, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham trying to 
get the, the Secretary of State in Georgia to quit counting votes and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, all this chicanery, really, that's yeah. going on. Is that all of these individuals, well, most of them, you know, I think would would say that they are acting from the purest motives, you know, that they are on the right side of history, yeah. as it were, and that they are, in effect, defending that prerogative. And it's uh, from some of those folks that, you know, as we've seen throughout this historical you know, frame of the modern era is some of the worst abuses occur. And and it's not just because they're they're double, you know, they're double dealing or they're two faced or something. I think they're true believers in a way. You know, Satya talks about how they often would say in the beginning, well, it's a necessary evil. Yeah. You know, in other words, we you know, we're not necessarily proud, but it's a necessary evil. But you know what we learn is that if a necessary evil works well enough, and sticks around long enough, it becomes gospel. It becomes yeah. a positive good. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even that idea that's a necessary evil, the people who are saying that, what they're realizing is the evil is not going to be um, placed upon them, right? That it's a necessary evil to let those people suffer. It's, it's always the case. It's not they that have to suffer the, that necessary evil. And so those necessary evils have this tendency to, um, to really uh, end up on the shoulders of, poor people in these societies, the workers, um, to the people in the colonies as well, that, you know, who's, who has to suffer, who has to sacrifice is almost always going to be people other than the person claiming, well, I don't want to do this, but I have to do it anyway. Um, and so, you know, even that, that, that idea, uh, that you sit up on this pedestal and you get to look down on the world and determine who's worth sacrificing for this thing you feel is, is necessary to make happen. Um, I mean, that's the eschatological idea as well, right? That we're on the way somewhere. Some people are going to get harmed by this and it's going to be you people, not, not me, right? That seems to be built into that, even if they're not maybe facing up to the, that, that idea. Yeah, with, with uh, utmost even uh, confidence, certainly, but often uh, sincerity, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's enough to make a bit of a cynic out of you. I, I sent you the line the other day, uh, if we have learned nothing else from the 20th century, we should at least have grasped that the more perfect the answer, the more terrifying its consequences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we both kind of snapped to that, you know. Look, as, as we sort of head into an outro, you know, I, I want to, because we were kind of kidding at the beginning, you know, about not always appearing to be on the downbeat or something, you know, but trying to be uh, upbeat. I, I'm only going to have to take that, that our listeners, our friends understand that, that we do see this, you and I, as ultimately being constructive and in that sense, that sense positive. In other words, by looking at these issues so closely and often they're these kind of gospel you know, uh, uh, issues of the West, you know, that, that are assumed and taken to be almost sacrosanct, you know. Um, and I was thinking of Isaac Newton, you know, because it was Newton as the great intellect of the, of the 17th century who had such wide-ranging influence on the thinking of, you know, of disparate areas of Western thought, uh, including political thought, you know, including the idea that you could create a political science you know, which would mm-hmm. seem to be an oxymoron, right? Now, what's less scientific than politics? But right. but this idea that ultimately the universe was rational, it worked according to certain laws, 
And that Newton put forward his Principia Mathematica in 1787 or 1687 seemed to suggest that you could trust in those laws. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 that the, the universe was rational. But, you know, and you couldn't argue with it. In other words, it was an unshakable truth, whether it be, you know, the laws of gravity or thermodynamics, what have you. So what do we get in the 20th century? You know, we get the new physics, right? You know, with Einstein and, and the new chemistry with the, with the Curies and, and, you know, that, un, that unshakable article of, of, of truth that came out of the new, Newtonian mechanics that, you know, reinforced this idea that the smallest, most elementary particle was the atom that you could take any material thing and ultimately winnow it down and you would come to this irreducible point, this element called the atom that, that you know, came from the Greek word that meant undivisible or uncuttable, right? Yeah. But what are the physics, uh, you know, the physicists of the 20th century, the, the, the chemists of the 20th, what do they show? Is that the atom was reducible, mm-hmm. that there was, there, were the, there was an interior world to the atom or you have a nucleus you know, you have electrons and, and you know, uh, protons and, and, and that there was a lot happening. In fact, the, the real energy, the real source of power was happening inside that otherwise uncuttable particle, you know. And so Newton was politely revised and corrected uh, where the new physics, you know, was, was concerned. So, you know, my thing, and we were talking about this earlier, Josh, is so that happened, Right. And, and, and sure, there, there were, you know, traditionalists or Newtonian defenders, you know, who wanted, just as when Newton's ideas came out, there were Aristotelians, you know, who were arguing, no, wait, hold. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of science paradigm thing, you know, that Thomas Kuhn talked about. And, and yet it happened. Newton was revised, you know, and corrected. But the ideas that came from Newton, particularly regarding the natural laws that are governing Western society, you know, these unshakable, irreducible principles of things like liberty. Uh, why hasn't that been revised, you know, in the face of all these depredations that you're discussing, that we're talking about? In other words, why haven't we had our, you know, our moment of Marie Curie or Albert Einstein saying, wait, it doesn't work that way. We need a new history. You know, right. that 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 doesn't that doesn't work. Well, do so think? And the irony is that, you know, one of the reasons why the new science of the of the 17th century was so influential on these Enlightenment scholars of the 18th century is, is, as you were saying, that idea that, okay, now we found the source of truth. There's this there's this method we can use and we can find truth. And then once we have truth, we can understand the world. And then once we understand the world, then we can, you know, fix the problems of the world. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. saying stuff like, I wish I was born later, you know, so I could see mm-hmm. the world as it would become in, in this glorious future. It's, that, again, that eschatology where we're all heading, mm-hmm. that progress. But ultimately, you know, science as the basis of truth. But what, what we've seen, what you're just talking about, is that science is constantly subject to revision, right? That's part of, mm-hmm. part of science is also that these are hypotheses and they're theories, and any theory can fall apart if you get more evidence. And when you get that evidence, then you got to revise your theory and come up with something new. And so, you know, that idea that science is, is going to bring us truth and we can follow these methods... But the things that the Enlightenment scholars came up with, the ideas they came up with, which are, you know, supposedly based on turning science to human affairs and, you know, turning science to the, to, to the, the, the world of politics and society and economics, those ideas get, you know, as you said, they barely ever get, get um, revised at all. And so, 
you know, one of the key ideologies that's brought, you know, within the empires is not going to be, you know, ideas of liberty, which maybe get to India, get to these places, um, you know, as almost like inadvertent uh, aspects of, of Western imperialism. The thing they really brought was free market capitalism, right? And if anything should be revised, it's the idea that that the market is going to solve um, is going to solve all the problems of the world. That we can just leave things up to this market. It's been proved again and again and again that it it doesn't work. It doesn't actually uh, allow people to. Um, it doesn't reduce inequality. It doesn't increase inefficiency. What it does is it serves a very particular people uh, set of people um, in a very particular way. Um, uh, and you know that, yeah. that that there's a really I think almost you know. Um, you know, a, a subtle point, but a really powerful one in there and what you're saying, because if if in some ways this this claim, this eschatological claim of progress and that we're heading in the right, you know, is, is itself kind of um, internally contradicted by the fact that what we often call then progress is, in fact, instead a kind of cyclical return to failure. In other <laughs> words, yeah. what, to, you know, what Tony Judd was saying in Ill Fares the Land is we actually had a period, you know, coming out of World War II, uh, what he calls social democracy, you know, based in, in the United States, sort of based on, you know, the, the initiatives of the New Deal era, uh, stronger labor unions, um, you know, spent, government spending in, in areas of social welfare and such, that John Maynard Keynes and, you know, the British are doing their own thing with that, with the health this system after World War II, that it actually worked for a while. That is what we would take as an objective metric, you know, uh, a quantitative me- uh, measure of it, the standard of living, yep. you know, did Lowest rise. rates of inequality, right? I believe. Lowest but- rates of inequality uh, ever in the history of capitalism. Yeah. Um, you know, home ownership. I mean, all these different metrics, right? You know, were as high as they'd ever been. But then w- what happens is you get this sort of neoconservative, you know, reaction. Uh, and in the United States, again, you know, in the 80s with Reagan and, and, and austerity with Thatcher, you know, in Britain. And in effect, they they repeal, you know, all those advances, mm-hmm. right, by returning to the kind of raw, unabated market mentality. And so it's at that point you'd say, wait a minute, this is going backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is going back to, you know, 19th century industrial capitalism or something, yeah. you know, and... What you're getting is not forward progress at that point, but is a kind of cyclical return to a, a, a point of uh, degradation. Yeah. You know, but but it gets masked over as this return to pure, you know, market relations. Uh, but they're not pure. They're they're already outmoded. And so that's the point I wanted to throw yeah. in there is that in, in the politics, it, it ends up getting... Um, you know, turned back. Yeah, uh, I, know, I know you want to you want to end with some positivities, but let me just I just yeah. because you're talking about this, you know, this kind of um, extreme capitalism of the 19th century being returned to, and and I want to uh, read a little quote from um, from Mike Davis, this um, Marxist historian and scholar, who wrote a book called uh, "Late Victorian Holocaust." He says of this world, this late 19th century world, he says millions died in in, in a set of famines um, in the late 19th century all across the uh, non-European world, millions died not outside the modern world system, but in the very process of being forcibly incorporated into its economic and political structures. They died in the golden age of liberal capitalism. Indeed, many were murdered, as we shall see, by the theological application of the sacred principles of Smith, Bentham, and Mill. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what what's really important there is if you if you start thinking about you know these Western ideologies is not primarily the ideologies of, of reason and rationality and science, um, but the, the ideologies essentially being faith based, right? Almost religious um, in in the way they're they're spread and the way they're believed and the way they. Uh, are going to create an, an entire worldview for people to to fit into and then fit the world into as well. Um, what we can then see is that the the, the expansion of, of Western power, the expansion of European power, begins to look a lot, getting back to Alabadi, um, like uh, the expansion of a, of a new faith, a new religious system, a, a new spiritual system, but one that spread with more brutality and more force and, and maybe uh, faster than any previous spiritual system had ever uh, progressed before. So understand the Western world is not uh, a story of progress in science, but as, as one as ideological, almost proselytization by the sword or by the gun, um, things begin to look more clearly and you can start seeing the world not from, you know, above, not from the point of view of those who won, uh, but more and more from the perspective of those uh, who were below, those who were at the bottom. Yeah, that's very well said and pretty profound. And uh, well, look, yeah, hold me to it. I, I'm going to end here on what I think we were <laughs> will both agree. You know, is a fairly optimistic note. Uh, uh, what we're arguing for is 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 that the those who stand on the political stage today are the equivalents of the the, the neo Newtonians or something trying mm -hmm. to overturn relativity. And, uh, you know, quantum mechanics or something. In right. other words, that, that's not progressive, right? That's regressive. Mm -hmm. And so they claim to be in this, you know, flow of, you know, historical uh, enlightenment and progress, but really they're reactionaries, you know? And uh, so here's what I want to say about what our role, if, you know, as such, is in this, uh, this, this debate and it comes from actually a historian who I've been reading lately, a guy, David Silverman. He does Native American history. He's done a book on uh, 17th century New England. And and he's not just debunking the Thanksgiving myth, you know, because uh, that's been done pretty well. But he's saying, here's why it's so important that we do that, that we call things by their true names, as we said in the last yeah. episode. He says, serious critical history tends to be hard on the living it challenges us to see distortions embedded in the heroic national origins myth, often leaves us feeling uncomfortable. But, you know, he says it also has the capacity to help us become more humble and humane. And that's where the optimism comes in for me, Josh. And I think mm -hmm. it does for you, too is not in just replicating these failed experiments and calling it progress. But by calling things by their trinity, by calling out those who manage their conscience, even as great destruction follows in their wake, you know, by calling them out, uh, as many of those who you quoted from the other side of the imperial British line in mm -hmm. India and the Middle East and elsewhere have done, is that we give ourselves a chance to rectify these obvious failed experiments. And to put ourselves on a genuinely uh, progressive path. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's end this episode now as humbly and humanely as possible, and we will talk to you again next week. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again, so you don't have to.